This is the Empowered Athlete Podcast, Episode 7. Today on the Empowered Athlete Podcast, we're talking to an influencer, a change maker, someone who's been opening doors for athletes in every single sport in Canada for the last 20 years. We're here with Chris Burley today. Can you imagine starting your sport at four years old and taking it all the way to the Olympics, having done no other sport and not really being able to be who you really are? And that's what we're going to dive into today with Chris Burley. Typically in gym clothes, I find it such a treat to get dressed up and go out. Paul says I clean up well. We both love nice watches, and I just found a company that's a perfect fit for both of us. Welly Merck watches are Swiss-made, high-fashion accessories that we love, and guess what? We have a discount for you. 15% off any men's or women's watches. Just go to wellymerck.com, that's W-E-L-L-Y-M-E-R-C-K.com, and use discount code W-K-A-R-I-15. So that's capital W, capital K-A-R-I, and 15. So go ahead, shop for yourself, shop for people for Christmas. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empowered Athlete Podcast, created to support athletes in their pursuit of excellence and inspire others toward their best lives. Hosted by Kari Schneider, coach to top performers in sport and life, and Paul Duerden, former national and professional volleyball player. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Empowered Athlete Podcast. My name is Paul Durden. I'm joined by my lovely better half, Kari Schneider. We're your hosts, and we are beyond excited for today's conversation. We have Olympic gymnast Chris Burley joining us. Chris, how are you doing? I'm well. Thanks, Paul. Thanks so much for coming on. You've got quite an amazing competitive background. You've been competitive for 10 years from 89 to 99. And you're an Olympian. You're a four-time national champion. You've got all kinds of other major games in your repertoire. And we're so excited to have you with us. Can you kind of give the audience a little bit of a how you got into your sport and what your, what your start, what your background was like? Definitely. Thanks, Kari. Um, so I originally, I was born and raised in uh, Nova Scotia in a small town called Truro, Nova Scotia. But my sport was artistic gymnastics. Um, but when I started in artistic gymnastics in my area of, uh, of the country, there wasn't actually any boys programs available. So I actually joined at the age of four years old, the only club in the, in, in the, in the town of Truro, which was a girls club. And uh, so I started when I was the age of four and, uh, you know, basically discovered at the YMCA, my, my mom used to take me to work when she was a, a working part-time there. And, I used to drive her crazy and she sent me one day into an, uh, an after school tumbling class because I was driving her crazy. And the coach came running up to her afterwards and said, you got to put this kid in gymnastics. And uh, so I did. And uh, <laughs> about a year later, um, when I was about five years old, they started a boys program, the very first boys program in my area. And uh, I was in that first group of boys. And, uh, you know, from that point on, I was I was hooked. That's were you, were you, 
Go ahead. Were your parents athletic, Chris? I mean, uh, I know yeah, Car- I Kari from- and I. Kari and I have five kids between us, blended family, and wow, we <laughs> we love gymnastics for a number of reasons. Uh, we love sport, number one, and just to appreciate the things that gymnasts can do. Having trained seriously, not being able to come close to it personally, I'm blown away by what gymnasts can do. But more, we we also love it just in terms of it building a complete athlete, and so we want our kids to have a little exposure to it when they're young. And then, you know, decide what route they want to go sport-wise, but get that initial contact with gymnastics. Right? Were your parents athletic? and Or how, how did you get that little push into it? You know, just, well, well gymnastics, it yeah, gymnastics was an accident. Uh, it was an accident of fate when I went in and because I was high energy and drove my mom crazy. But I come from a family of jocks. My dad was a hockey player. My mom did volleyball and track and field in, um, in university and high school. And my brother played varsity volleyball, believe it or not. So are they, are they, are they tall? <laughs> my brother's just shy of six feet. So he was the uh, backcourt specialist for Dahab University for about five years back in the day before Libero was there. So, uh, but, uh, so yeah, how tall so- are you? Oh, that's a personal question. Um, <laughs> you said there was no off limits. <laughs> <laughs> no off limits. Uh, I, I think on my passport it says I'm five foot six, so that I'm going to stick with that. Stick with it. Perfect. All right. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's but, perfect but, for gymnastics. Yeah, but if, when it comes to sport, I mean, like nobody, guys, I come from a hockey, hockey province, really. I mean, yeah. the province of Sidney Crosby. I mean, hockey is huge in Nova Scotia. And gymnastics was relatively unknown and like I said I was in the first group of four or five boys that actually even did men's gymnastics in my whole town so um it was a it was a very small community and a very tight-knit community but it was also a community that was um that didn't have a lot of opportunity when I was when I was younger so I um Nova Scotia was sort of fledgling at, at that point in its you know gymnastics development so I actually went to the Canada Games um having just turned nine years old oh my gosh um, in 1983 with all all these teenagers right yeah and my i was actually competing against uh curtis hibbert who ended up becoming one of my idols as a as a young gymnast who was a uh, i think three-time world medalist and he was just he was incredible uh during the late 80s and early 90s in gymnastics and so i idolized him but i he was 17 and i think he won the competition but i had just turned nine years old and was uh uh, at the Canada Games at a young age, so I started a little bit young. Um, That's you know, incredible. I... That's incredible. But so the the girls' club that you were at was it competitive? And did you start to get um, competitive with that club, or did you have to move somewhere else or get coached somewhere else? How did that work for you from that time you were four to nine years old? Right. I think what happened was, and, and I was four years old, so forgive me if I don't know for sure, but the, <laughs> I thought, I think the girls club, the coaches moved out. So then they switched it and called it another club and switched to a, um, what we call the Turo Spartans or at the time was called the Spartans. So they created a new club and reinvented that club and had a boys, had a coach come in, um, that was out of province and then was, uh, familiar coaching boys and girls. And they started a boys program there. So it was, um, that was how it all sort of started. And, Incidentally, the when I was about nine, my um, one of my my main coach when I was young was a gentleman by the name of Takakuchi. And what's interesting is his son went to the Olympics following me in artistic gymnastics, and he's now the coach of Ellie Black. Wow! Um, so there's this long lineage, and Nova Scotia has a long history of that. Um, but I had uh, I was with him for about 
13 years. But then when, and also his, my old coach Tack, his, one of his best friends was Mitsugu Ikeda, Richard Ikeda's father. So Richard Ikeda and I started together at night as eight or nine years old in Nova Scotia training in a small club in, in a small town. And both of us went to the Olympics together in 1996. It's, it's those incredible stories of the most unlikely scenario that you just, you know, it, I think people need to hear that because it fosters that thought of, okay, anything is possible. You can't have the excuse of my town's too small or I don't have a coach <laughs> or, or whatever, because it can happen. And you see it all the time. The, the kid who comes out of some somewhere in nowhere that, mm-hmm. that they, they thrive and they, um, they succeed. And so it just, uh, it just goes to show you just, it doesn't have to be this huge club in Toronto or this huge, you know, the, the most reputable place in, in the country to still foster talent and nurture that talent. I, I agree. I think that um, there's lots of talented athletes, but to reach the highest levels, you need more than just talent. Um, but, uh, you know, growing up in a, in a, in an area like Nova Scotia, as a young athlete, it was, uh, I can tell you that it was an uphill battle for a few reasons. Uh, number one, I didn't have the athletes to train with and compete with in the local level to learn. And, and, and gymnastics is a sport you learn a lot by, you know, watching other athletes and being around other athletes. So, um, and the other, the other thing that I always experienced at a very young age is that once I started to get a little bit of success locally, I had to start competing. Like I said, at Canada Games, I was competing nationally at the age of nine. And all of a sudden I was on a much, much bigger stage with um, athletes from Ontario, Quebec and British Columbia and other other provinces that had huge, big clubs and coaches and systems. And um, so it was a really uphill battle. And I remember when I started to get some success at, you know, 11, 12 in what we call the age group categories, I remember my coach sat me down and, um, and said, you know, we're a judge sport and in, in, because you're from Nova Scotia and because we don't have, there's never been another national team athlete before me, I was the first. And so you have to do better than everybody else. If you want to be, if you want to score a 9.4, you have to do a 9.6. If an Ontario kid doesn't wants to score 9.4, they have to do a Mm 9.4. They will get the benefit of the doubt because you come without a reputation, without that provincial background and you know coming from a small town and and you know it's interesting because i uh, i reconnected at this year with at the national championships with some of the old uh, athletes and coaches that i know and i i heard stories of how ellie black had to overcome the same thing yeah which was just it's so unfortunate because you you think of the judged sports and then there's this this bias still mm-hmm. still existing for for, for the better or bigger clubs or, or that kind of thing. But at the same time, that one line became likely such a gift for you because you're being told that, you know, you just have to do that much better, that it's got to be slightly more, slightly cleaner, slightly more crisp, just that much more. And that seed was planted for you and it likely fostered that work ethic that you speak of, which Paul and I are that's near and dear to our hearts in terms of, you know, it's been clear in my entire career that it's not the talented ones that make it to that top level. It's the talented ones who decide to work that much harder. And for you, 
it's it's almost like that little seed was planted would you would you say that was you know did that become a blessing or a curse when that coach said that to you well i think it's both because yeah. In, in, yeah, in, yeah. in in high performance sport it's a blessing because i knew i was never i never expected the benefit of the doubt and little did i know that this little kid that you know from nova scotia to try to get to try to get some credibility on the national level once you made the national, once I made the national team at 15, I was a little bit younger. And once I became national champion, guess what? Once, once Canada goes and competes in the rest of the world, it's the same scenario. Um, yeah. Yep. It's just so Canada. It's just Canada. <laughs> little and, and, and old Canada. Little old yeah. Canada. So yeah. again, it, in, in a way, so it really, really helped me because I, I, I did actually see a lot of frustration alongs, uh, among some the teammates for example we'd go to pan american games and paul that's where you and i met was at the 95 pan american games in um mar del mar plata, plata. that's right yeah. we had a really good team our canadian team was there and we were really strong and we were third a lot because the americans and the cubans were fighting with each other one two and the judges you know and there's all this politics around judges and so once again, I remember the team, some of my teammates that were from Ontario were, were really, really frustrated. And it was funny because I, I actually had experienced that my whole <laughs> career, right? Being a kid from Nova Scotia going, I, why do we have to do that much better than the Cubans and the Americans to get the same score or to get, why are we always there? Well, it, it, it <laughs> set me up to understand on the international level. And I think that was a really, really, really helpful thing from a high performance perspective. But I can tell you now that I'm retired, it's one of the things that I struggle with, right? Because, you know, as, as a lot of the skills that we have as high performance athletes, that intense drive and focus and that perfectionism and that I've got to go to that even beyond what everybody else is doing. Because, I mean, you know, as, as, train, as a trainer, if you want to have your athlete go and, and beat other athletes, they need to do more. They need mm-hmm. to do that little bit yeah. more. And at the high performance level, it's only fractions of a point or fractions of a second that can make the difference between a final and a not final or a medal and a finalist. And, uh, and, and so all of that is really, really important in terms of high performance sport. But it's also can be really tough when you transition out of sport. Um, yeah and into real life so and and it's also that fine line for that athlete that that they don't necessarily know they can do that much better that fraction more they are trying to have faith in what they've been told by a coach or um by someone else that or, or what they think they're supposed to do but they've never done it and they don't necessarily know that they can they just have to have this unknowing faith that that okay i i maybe i can or they say i can and then keep pushing and keep pushing for that goal um you've you've you made it to that atlanta olympics was that a highlight what would you say would have been the biggest highlight that kind of euphoric moment that you can think Mm -hmm. of in your career yeah it's really funny you ask because um I, i i was on the phone with scott russell the other day because he's writing a piece. I'm being inducted into the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame of this year. Congratulations. Uh, Congratulations. That's, That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. And what's interesting is he asked me that same question because he covered my career for many, many years. And, uh, uh, and he's, he's, a, he's a, obviously a, a great supporter of amateur sport. And I remembered and I, and I thought back to 
1994 Commonwealth Games, and uh, I believe he was covering the sport then. And our Team Canada had never lost the gold medal, and we came into the final rotation in, in third place. And our team was um, seated third. We had basically been written off by everybody going in because the British had a world medalist and the Australian team was incredibly strong as a group. And, um, but, but the games were in Victoria, BC. And, you know, Paul, you know, it, it's very rare that Canadian athletes get an opportunity to compete in their own country in front of their home crowd. And, you know, I'm going into the last event. Uh, we, our, Team Canada was in third place. And I know there were, it was this, our team, we felt like we had done the best that we could. And we went in thinking, okay, we're third. And I was last up on the last event, which also happened to be floor exercise, my best event. And um, I remember to this day, the situation, all the other um, apparatus had finished competing because there was a judging conference on my teammate before me. So I was the last up, every other, everybody else, was finished and um so all i could think about was doing my routine like this was it this was my chance to you know sort of be the anchor leg for for team canada anyway i did one of the best routines of my entire life and i remember coming down off the podium and the team and i looked at each other and said you know we're the best and the coach came over and said you know we won <laughs> by two tenths of a point because I oh had, my gosh i had like basically um our whole team had come together and anyway, so that was to me one of that historic yeah, moment in it, Canada in front yeah, of the home crowd. It's movie behind. worthy. That's movie worthy. You know, you just you can you can visualize it all and and just the team erupting and yeah. Yeah, well, it's, I, it's, it's the classic. Awesome. This is what it all comes down to. And yeah, it was in, yeah. on that big stage. You're able to deliver it for the team for the win. It, it doesn't get any better than that. That's and the. It was the uh, one of the highlights of my career because the reality is we didn't. It wasn't like I knew what we we knew we were in third place at that point. We weren't uh, we weren't performing for a medal. We were performing for pride and, and to represent our country. And in doing so, the best of, we were able to um, to to win. And it was one of the most important moments. But you talked about the you know, uh, Carrie about you have to believe that you can do something. And so um, coming back to this this conversation with Scott, he asked me what was important. And, from a very young age, I was always very, very made very aware that I was from Nova Scotia, that I that I had a responsibility and an obligation. And so um, I take that very seriously. And, and so when I look at being the first athlete from my province to make the national team, the first national champion, the first, you know, Pan Am medalist. And then I look at what that helped do. And I knew that there was a responsibility because without um without hope and without dreams there's no mm -hmm. potential mm -hmm. and and before i wasn't i always dreamed of going to the olympics and so when i when i was able to achieve that as a nova scotia kid i think uh i also felt a huge amount of responsibility for the other athletes on this coast to to feel like they could do it too and um you know i'm just so proud too because we've had um you know other athletes that have come and then and i look at Ellie Black and, and what she's been able to accomplish. And I don't think anybody from the from Nova Scotia or the East Coast or some smaller towns would ever have to sort of question what's possible as she's a, the best gymnast that we've ever produced. So um, that, that, that I think is important. 
When you, and, and to speak to your success and the legacy that it brings, and, and I've seen this with Paul and he would probably, this is something that's hard for him, I think, to acknowledge, but this is the kind of thing that you don't even realize because you're so focused on your sport for so long, but you don't realize the effect it has on other uh, young up and comers and how you're actually influencing them unknowingly and and years later and maybe at the time that you get inducted there's going to be people who approach you and quite literally say I got into that sport because I saw you perform or I saw you compete or I saw uh, you know I was amazed by how you looked on the you know on the bars or whatever but it's it's that legacy that you don't even realize is happening and you don't realize how you're influencing other people that ends up affecting your whole province and it's it's a pretty cool thing i had that happen actually in the last year and for 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 a very different reason um but not any less powerful i i um i was asked about a year and a half ago uh because i work um as an as as an out olympian uh, I work with the Canadian Olympic Committee's one team program to work on diversity and LGBTQI2S inclusion in sport. So about a year and a half ago, I was asked by the Sport Inclusion Task Force people to, would I work with Gymnastics Canada on a, the development of a task force and strategy for, um, to address LGBTQI2S phobia uh, or homophobia in gymnastics? And um, what, what, what came out of that, and to make a long story short, was I had an athlete con- um, contact me uh, during that process of where I was engaged in helping do some environmental scan and research and planning, um, who, who wrote me a, a long letter and said that I changed his life because he saw me as a young athlete and saw himself and he was able to see someone that looked like him but also wasn't that was what's the word i don't know he he was able to see the same traits in himself in me and mm-hmm. it hugely uh, inspired him to continue in his sport he actually came out i know ne- i was never out as during a, during my competitive career mm-hmm. but he came out during his competitive career and is still involved in coaching and i he wrote me a long letter after uh you know in the last year to, to explain the impact uh, and the visibility that, that, that my visibility has had, even subsequent to my retirement. So that was really quite powerful um, for me. Pause there for just one moment. Um, okay, first, because this is really important. Um, we're getting just a little bit of static, I think, from your end, and I want to make sure that this is all heard because I think this is very important. Okay. So if there's a little, if there's a little move or something that you can do with your phone, uh, perhaps. Yeah, it is Does picking it? up, but. That's better now, I think. Yep. Okay. Oh. I'm not doing, I'm barely moving. Okay. That's much better. That's though. way better you, though. You're much yeah. clearer. Okay. okay. Let's, let's dive back in here and I'm going to pause okay. for just a moment. Okay. Okay. Chris, can you explain to people exactly the entire so exactly what you what your role is when it comes to kind of bridging that gap between the understanding 
in the community and I'm not going to get all the letters right. L L G B. <laughs> can you explain all the letters and can you explain, yeah. can you explain, you know, the, the motivation behind it? Because I am positive here that there's probably going to be some challenges that you can um, tell us about that you've overcome in your career because you weren't out when you were competing and that in and of itself, I can't even imagine not being being so so focused on such a massive like people don't truly understand what it's like to train in a quad and train that hard and that focused and that fine-tuned for that kind of performance on a world stage and then at the same time all at the same time you're not being who you truly truly are so so first explain a little bit about what you're doing but then if you can as well Explain some of the challenges you've had to overcome. Yeah, sure. So in 2014, I believe it was 2014, the Canadian Olympic Committee um, launched what they called their one team program, one team initiative, which um, basically was the Canadian Olympic Committee standing up and saying, we are one team, you know, it doesn't matter who you love, and that we're, we're, they were focused on um, uh, on diversity as a as a key platform for what Canadian athletes and and the Canadian Olympic ideals stand for. So as part of that, I'm 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 a one team ambassador, but part of my role is to, so, you know, basically to promote um, diversity and inclusion within sport and sometimes outside of sport. And what we call, I, I mean, I know the letters kind of can be daunting. LGBTQI2S. It's <laughs> Lesbian, gay. I always, I always get lesbian, gay, Bi, bisexual, trans, bisexual, transgender, queer. Um, two is is two spirited, intersex, and uh, there's probably one more I'm missing. Um, most of us in the community can are comfortable just saying gay or queer, but um, that you can tell I've worked on a few task forces, so it rolls off my tongue. What does two spirited really, mean? Two spirit is the uh, indigenous peoples. Um, uh, identification that you have both male and female spirit and perfect okay so it it's that and which was quite celebrated back before colonialism came in and so um we our uh, indigenous friends would uh call themselves in many cases two-spirited okay that's so, good that that helps me understand that's perfect and most people are comfortable saying lgbtq yeah uh, and that's what and, we're familiar with thing. We right. just weren't and familiar with the tail end of it, yeah. Yeah, the I2S and I intersects with someone like a caster in athletics and, and people like that that share um, characteristics and other kinds of things. But anyway, the point of the whole uh, process for me was I had, I had nothing to do, pretty much nothing to do with gymnastics since I retired in 1999. And part of the reason for that was because I near the end of my career, as I got a little bit older, 18, 20, you know, 22, 25 years old, um, I had a very difficult time conforming to, to the rest of what the expectations around uh, what, what I should be on the team. I identified very early that I was different, but there wasn't a whole lot of safety in terms of how this space was set up. There was never any talk about diversity or um, whether it's gender identity or sexual preference or, you know, any of those things. And so um, I was very much tightly in the closet. And I was also in a sport where, um, as a judge sport, um, 
the international level is there was a lot of Eastern European power that, you know, there was Germans and Russians and my coach was Russian. So the idea, and I also saw other athletes that had come out in one, some way or another and had been mercilessly, mercilessly persecuted and it actually really hurt their careers. So there was no way that I felt that it was number one, safe. And number two, that it would actually, you know, it could actually hurt my career. So I never came out as an athlete. So it's a regret. But when you talk about the impact of a high performance athlete, that to be able to bring your whole self to what you're doing and to, and is really, really important. And and we talked a little bit in in a a conversation earlier about identity and about your self identity. So I feel like part of my, my role now is as having not, at the time in the 90s, not feeling comfortable and able to come out, I think times have changed and the momentum has shifted the other way where there's a tremendous number of Canadian athletes, both active and retired, that uh, both LGBTQ and allies. And so everybody is supporting this because it's, you know, a diverse environment is good for everybody and athletes should be able to have and maintain their own identity because that fosters and improves performance and happiness. Because, I mean, also a little bit of, time after I retired also I mean you know the number one purpose about sport is to make great Canadians mm-hmm. not not necessarily to make Olympic medalists so I sometimes struggle with that the focus on the medal count mm-hmm. um, because I know Paul you never went to the Olympics but it wasn't because you weren't one of the top volleyball players in the world and Paul and you and I rub, talked rub about, it in Chris it's all right <laughs> but, 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 no, no. but you and you and I talked about this that I had to go to the Olympics to realize that I didn't have to go to the Olympics that right it's it's, it's more than that um and and I think that's what high performance sport and, and nobody even remembers me as an athlete anyway these days outside of um uh, you know, the my family and friends and colleagues but and and you know what that's okay with because I had an impact and now my job is to try to come back and give back. And when I started giving back with the, the um, task force with Gymnastics Canada, for example, I was shocked at the impact that I had at the time because that, that I'm, I'm hearing back finally now, 15, 18, 20 years later, that I impacted people that were, that were kids at the time when they saw someone that was not the most masculine butch guy doing gymnastics and still being successful. And they thought, you know what, there's someone that has the characteristics like I do and still successful. So now I look at, at the opportunity to give back. Uh, see, you know, can, we, can we take these take things even farther? In part because sport has a long, long way to come <laughs> still. Yeah. It's, it's incredible what you're doing. And, you know, in the context of, thinking about the Olympics and things that are important in our lives, what we think are important, the the work that you're doing to provide freedom of expression and inclusion and just showing how diversity is strength is the most important thing you can be doing. It's, you know, it's bringing happiness and comfort to people who may not have that. And the common theme that's come up in our discussions working on the podcast thus far is Athletes, regardless of the sport, can feel trapped or powerless in that they fear showing any type of weakness. And it could be your sexual orientation. It could be an injury. It could be mental health. It could be anything that you personally feel may be perceived or interpreted interpreted by your coach or those with power in your sport. You're afraid to share because it's so competitive. It's so difficult to hold a spot on a national team. And so 
so many athletes out there are carrying these these burdens that they can't share. It, it was a huge motivator for Kari and I to get this podcast going to let everyone know that everyone's dealing with these things and it's okay. And there are people to talk to and it may not be in your sport, but uh, your example of what you're doing now is a perfect, a perfect uh, transition, a perfect way to, to give back to those who need it most. Well, you know what's really funny is that athletes, have you ever walked in and talked to athletes? You go, oh yeah, they get it, mm-hmm. right? When, yeah. when high-performance athletes talk to other high-performance yeah. athletes, you don't talk about all that stuff. You kind of intuitively get it. Yeah. Um, I was really fortunate um, to, to spend a week in Japan in February with a group of eight young baby Olympians, I'll call them, and future Olympians, eight athletes from Canada, some of whom are already Olympians, some who are hoping to go to 2020. It was like the hopefuls. So I did a little work to help the Japanese consulate set some programs up and connected them with the Olympics. Anyway, I was able to go as the team captain to this group of young, these young eight athletes from a diverse sport from all over the place. And we got this group together. We're still a tight-knit group. Every athlete went from synchronized swimming to archery to taekwondo to canoeing. Everybody got along so well because we had that feeling that, ah, we get it. And with high-performance athletes, so much of their... Uh, of, of your time spent in isolation with your team or your yeah. coach that you think, oh, this is just me. This is only me. And my big revelation was in the 1996 Olympics, um, the assistant chef to Miss Jean Sylvia Sweeney, who was an Olympian, um, she, and, she befriended me. And, and I remember sitting in a room of athletes and there was divers and there was gymnasts and there was rowers and there was all kinds of people. And we were just doing what your, your, what your podcast is doing. We yeah. were just talking yeah. and going, oh, my God, you feel that, too. Or, oh, my gosh, you go through that, too. And what I what quickly dawned on me is like, we're all we all yeah. have the same issues. And which is why athletes, when they get together, they get each other. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I really applaud what you're doing with the podcast. Well, but what, mm-hmm. what's hilarious is that we're trained as high performance athletes not to go there, to not talk about yeah. it for those yeah. reasons, Paul, that you were talking and- about. Right. And that's, and that's exactly what happened in, in my realm in that, in that say I'd have a handful of high performance athletes, but I'd be putting them together in a training session because they can't afford to train individually with me. Their sport body won't cover that. And so I'm putting a rugby player with a figure skater, with a diver, with a female hockey player, all of them in a training group together, but they're all training on their individual work but they're at the same time. And, and over time, you know, when you're tra- training month after month in these same groups of athletes, that's what happens is they start to learn from each other and realize that, oh, that's what happens in your sport bodies and, and your, yours is an aesthetic sport or yours is a team sport or whatever. And it's exactly that. And, and it's that conversation that almost needs to be had across the board on a regular basis so that the, at that down in the trenches where the athletes are, they just don't realize that they have support perhaps from other athletes out there. And that's what we're trying to create here. But going back to, for you specifically, what was the biggest challenge you would say that you had in your, in your sporting career? The biggest challenge. Um, well, biggest challenge. 
well, there's always challenges around funding and, and, and that kind of thing. But I think that's, that's a given. It's given. It's Canada. Most athletes don't. It's only hockey that has better funding than the other sports. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> hockey, hockey's one of them, but um, funding is always a critical one. But um, for, I, I guess one of the challenges um, that I always, that I look back now and I think was that so much of the focus and attention and expectation was solely around my performance that there wasn't uh, an understanding or an appreciation of identity growth and development. Now keep in mind, gymnastics is a sport of children. I started at the age of four. Um, and then I grew up my entire life in, in sport until I was 25, uh, right from being basically almost like a toddler right up to being a full, full adult. And in some sports, you know, you know, so that growth and development. So for me, it was a real identity shift. And so I really struggled with um, the challenge of that. I was only as good as my performance. And in gymnastics, it's an individual sport versus volleyball where you need six guys in the court. But still, there was that intense competition on your own team because Mm -hmm. the way the structure was that, you know, the more, the higher your, your ranking on the team, the more international assignments, the more opportunity to travel, the more your funding was on and on and on. So you're not only competing against your own teammates, you're competing in your club, you're competing. Everything was about competition and all the focus when I was young was on performance. And, and I remember, I remember that the year it happened, it was the year I went to the Canada games. I realized and I associated, oh, because I was a I was a little kid and I was a little bullied when I was a little kid and all of a sudden I went to Canada Games and made TV in Nova Scotia and carried the flag for Team Nova Scotia at the closing ceremonies. All of a sudden, it, things changed for me because all I had a, a little recognition and success and all of a sudden it was like, oh, the better mm. you do, the more people like you. There's a carrot now. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I learned that lesson really well because the yeah. thing is, if you keep winning, yeah, you will. People will like you. You will still yeah. keep getting what you want. You will progress. And that's so and then, primal. That's so it's primal. So primal. Yeah. And it is. It can be incredibly difficult to realize because that's. It's not real. It's an illusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're it's not, not looking at. at it's not me real as a love. Person. Yeah. It's not real love. Yeah. It's. It's all about. And then it's as you get older. Right. And then the, the the sport system breeds that, and then the high performance community endorses and supports that performance, performance, performance. And I think what we're seeing now in this day and age, particularly when athletes retire, is they go, who am I? Yeah. If I'm not the team captain and national champion of the gymnastics, well, who am I really? Who is, who is Chris? Or, or who is Paul? I'm, I'm, you're more than a volleyball player. So um, that's the real question. So I think the biggest struggle for me was um, looking back and not really knowing who I was beyond being you know, a, you know, a relatively gymnast. talented yeah. gymnast. Yeah. yeah, you know, and and then looking at so sure we all give up and sacrifice and there was great benefit from being an Olympic athlete, but to me that was the hardest point and it's taken me many years to get to really know who I am and like myself and be comfortable and understand that my identity and performance because honestly again when you get athletes in the room we don't you know we don't care how many medals each other's won or whatever we all yeah. just kind of support each other intuitively yeah at the same point you know, we're all people and, and some of the best relationships with athletes have come after we've retired when not really in a competitive environment. So identity to me has been one of the most important 
formative things that I hopefully um, things like the one team are going to start to change. Yeah. Uh, and this podcast is another example. Athletes talking to athletes, not talking to other athletes uh, to share that. But, you know, that isolation and that focus on performance above all else, I, you know, I think that was probably the biggest struggle that I had. And did you have a particular low point around that grappling with discovering your identity? Did you have a particular <laughs> low point that really was yep, tough you could to say overcome? So. <laughs> well, go well, there, my, go or, there. Or go there, right? Go <laughs> there. Um, so, yes, I did. And, and it was because when I was, you know, in my early 20s and, and late, well, actually late teens, early 20s, and I was discovering my, my sexual orientation or coming to grips with it. I knew it earlier, but I wasn't comfortable with it. Um, I also became, I, I was very, very focused, again, focused on performance because I was incredibly afraid of what people might think or what kind of situation I would be in if uh, I was more open about my sexuality. And, um, but um, basically on the gay scale, I'm not the butchest guy and the most masculine guy. So everybody assumed back the national team is this gay is this gay scale somewhere online (laughs) (laughs) but let's just say that the men's and women's team had bets on when i was coming out oh Uh, and that was all the conversation you see that was going in the background um and you know it came to a head at one point when i was attacked by a teammate and put in the hospital briefly uh i was assaulted by a teammate uh and what the the horrible part of that was horrible in and of itself but the worst part was after the incident, I came, wanted to come back to training. I was the one that was ostracized. Attacked, and, yeah. And, and so because I was different, because I wasn't following what I was supposed to, because they felt uncomfortable. And you, yeah, you're the problem. I'm the problem. Right? Yeah. And, um, and so I, I, I became, uh, I, I didn't feel like I was in a very safe space. Uh, and it got to the point where I actually had to call the police to feel safe in my own gym and a variety of other things but what happened was that the team most of the team not all of them but a lot of the team at the time kind of turned on me and said oh too bad suck it up like it was like you're being you're being a pussy right like yeah like it was like it was just even worse and then so it, it created an incredibly hostile environment the last couple of years of my career which made uh, I guess that part of contributed to having a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, but I also, um, it was a very difficult time in my life where I'm not sure looking back, it was amazing that I kept training and kept staying in that environment 24 seven, but that was probably one of the most horrible points in my life because it, you know, we were preparing for competition and trying to qualify for the 2000 Olympics. And, you know, I had, raised a bunch of money and centralized a lot of the national team athletes and we were working together and I had, you know, worked intensively on trying to raise money to help not only me, but four or five other athletes, which yeah. we did. And, um, and to go through that, it was, in, that was probably one of the hardest points, um, in my life. And then, which is one reason why, as I told you before, I had almost nothing to do with gymnastics for the last 20 years. Um, because I felt that, well, I they it was turned on. Yeah, I was just going to say it team. turned your back on you. And and did you have anybody to turn to in that time? Absolutely. I uh, you know I call her my angel, but uh, um, the sports psychologist that I had brought in to help with my group and team at the time, um, 
we lived in town and, um, you know, I told her what happened and she gave me the keys to her house for a week. Uh, and then my family came up and was, my family's always been very, very supportive. And they came up and I had, cause all the athletes, believe it or not, I had, we got a house donated. So I had, I coordinated a house we were all living, so I couldn't live there anymore. So, um, you know, on and on, you know, I had my family and I had some friends there to support, support me through that, but it, it created an incredibly hostile, uh, I guess, training environment. Um, and so it really made me quite bitter at the time and quite angry about, you know, this isn't what sports meant to be. This isn't what team teams are supposed to be. And I, I didn't quite understand at the time why all of this was happening to me. Um, but I knew it was, it was, it was pretty devastating. So were you, were you depressed? Depressed and anxious and angry. And, uh, you know, and I think again, as I talked about before, when I learned when I was a kid that the more, the better your performance, the more people liked you. I thought I, I sort of, I, I, I guess I redoubled my efforts yeah, we, to, to, to train harder. We hear that to, so much from athletes. Like I'll, I'll show them, I can prove it I'll show via, them. via what yep. I can do yep. and, and I, it'll be in their face, you know? Yep. And I wasn't going to let somebody else derail my career because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, come on, you can, you're, you're tough, you're tough, you're tough. And, you know, competing at the international level in any sport, you've got to be tough and, uh, and focused. But, I mean, that was, that was one of the reasons why I've now done, come full circle and agreed to work on the diversity space. And I think the time is right. And I've also come to understand and accept myself a lot because I, the, that environment was, and, and, I, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying all, you know, not everybody was awful to me, but the environment was so toxic at a, at, at a yeah. time. Whether whether it was me and my sexuality or another athlete and there are other issues, I mean, sport it just wasn't really, working. It wasn't working, and people weren't concerned about anybody's other than what they what performance they could have, yeah. you, you know, in the gym. And and I think that was that was a big lesson for me. Going, they really don't give a shit about yeah. who I am as an individual. They, as yeah. an individual, this isn't about the growth and development of of me as the better, better person and a teammate and. Yeah. All those wonderful things. This was about. It's about a score. Help? It's about a score. Can you get yeah. us to the Olympics or not? Yeah. And the yeah. reason they put up with me, full stop. I know full well because I had the conversation. I said, if you want to qualify for the Olympics, you need to be on the top athlete. Yeah. Them. Yeah. And, and at the. Go ahead. Yeah. No, that's. I, I was going to so say performance trumps it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And and at the same time, you can see now how toxic toxic it was and. Mm -hmm. When you're in it, though, it's it's like the forest for the trees. You can't necessarily see what's going on or why it's dysfunctional, but it just feels so bad, and it's just not working. And you you know you know that everything in you wants to be away from those people, but at the same time, everything in you wants to prove to them. And and it's just it's so unhealthy. Did coming out of that. You know, that brings a lot of trauma. That, that type of thing can cause post-traumatic stress syndrome. Do you, did you get help after you retired or, <laughs> or before? Like, I, I imagine it's a long process because for most people it is. But is that a process you went through in order to kind of be able to come full circle and go, okay, true forgiveness or true, you know, um, growth or progression really means being able to face all of the things that your life composes of well to answer your question i'm 
I'm still dealing with it. But yes, I have I do have yeah. help. And I had I had tremendous support from from friends and, and family um throughout all of throughout that and then and then since then. Um but you know there's a certain amount I I guess of maturity and, and stepping away from sport in general completely. I stepped away from sport for many years and said I've had enough of this. This is not a good environment and then now I can I can come back and look at it with a little bit of a different lens and um and and think well there are really good things and and come to grips with a few things like I was a, I was a good gymnast you know Ellie Black's certainly much at a higher level than I was and I can actually I can actually watch the Olympics and and cheer my ass off and be a total fan I couldn't watch the Olympics for over ten years yeah that's when I retired that's so sad it, yeah. It, because it caused anger and sadness and frustration and isolation and anger. So I did get help from that and I I've had help and I still get help for it. And, and that's enabled me to do that. And I recommend every athlete get help because I remember the, the week I retired, it was awful because all of a sudden I get a, a note that, you know, your funding, my carding fun funding was cut off. Yeah. National thing, like, Everything that I was comfortable and knew and how it worked stopped. Yeah. I was no longer a member of the national team. I was no longer captain of the national team. I wasn't a gymnast anymore. I was a quote-unquote normal person, and I, didn't, yeah. I had no idea how to be. Exactly. I, nobody teaches you how to be a normal person. Because high-performance athletes are not normal. No. And they're not trained to be normal. No. Because all the traits that make us high-performance athletes are traits that are outside the norm, which is why, it, you know, they're Olympic athletes. So. But I, I, you know, for me, it was important to accept and help, and 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 I think every athlete. And one of the big things about that, I think, is talking to other athletes and other. I had some retired athletes that mentored me. I had people like Margie Schuett, who's an incredible she uh, volunteer, and she does a lot of work with aquatics. She was vice president of uh, Commonwealth Games for years, and she's just an incredible. She was an incredible mentor for me and support system. So. Uh, you know, coming out, there's a lot of people there that can help, but yeah, it's been a, it's, it's an ongoing battle. And, you know, it's funny because I, I look at it and I go, yeah, I was good out here. Okay, great. And, and the honor, for example, with the Nova Scotia Hall of Fame is important and it reminds me of the impact and it reminds me of all of that, but I'm able to now put sport and my sport career as a fat one, just one facet or one part of my, part of my life, as opposed to saying, it's That's who you everything. are. Yes. It's, yeah. It's, you know, I was a good athlete, you know, and I was really proud of representing Canada and I had some good success and, 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 and I had some great experience that are really unusual. And, you know, I'm really grateful for that. Now I can look yeah. back and be grateful for the opportunities that I had. And sometimes I look back and think I was crazy for going through a lot of the things yeah, that I yeah. went through going, what was I thinking? But then, you know, that's the one good thing about that is being able to set a dream and then get through it and and then have a little net but but now it's for me it's about generating and finding that balance so yeah and, and even the work with one team you're in that place where you have perspective and you have a healthier mindset but working with one team can become cathartic in in being able to go full circle and like you say be able to appreciate and look back with fondness instead of only you know the bitterness or 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 the the challenges and the the hard things the that happened the fear it's the absolutely fear, really i mean it's yeah. like no matter no matter what coming up for any lgbtq person you're afraid because yeah. you never really know how people are but in sport 
it was even worse. And in for and for people, some people, in my experience, I had some. You know, some people don't feel safe, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, sometimes it's for very good reasons. And uh, you know, the the work with one team and the work that, and times have changed, and it's you know what what I but what is so inspiring to me is a lot of the LGBT young athletes that are coming out and. Um, like Rosie Kosser, who works with COC rhythmic gymnast, the only rhythmic gymnast, LGBT, lesbian rhythmic gymnast that's ever been out in public. What a, you know, what an incredible story. She came out before the 2012 Olympics as captain of the women's rhythmic team, first group to ever make the Olympics and to do so under incredible pressure, but to do so that I look at that and I admire these young people. And, and I also think. Well, you have to, you have to remember you, you've, you blaze this way. trail. Yeah, you, you paved I, the way. Like it's it's yeah. so important to remember that although you didn't come out as an athlete, you did after, and you've spoke about it, and you've created change and opened these doors for others to to expand this horizon. That's it's, it's well, something I can't I can't understand or even pretend to be able to relate to what you've had to go through. It's well for it, me. It's just Paul, supposed to be incredibly hard. Well, but I mean, what's in, what's equally as inspiring is all the allies that uh, of respite because you know what most the the community and the and the sport community and the high performance community has progressed so much since then, mm-hmm. and I think what the reality is by connecting athletes like we talked about earlier from multiple sports and connecting them like the athletes that I went to Japan with all eight sports all high performance from different sports. Oh my God, the, the 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 team building and understanding and support structure that was generated with just one week of being together is incredible. But for for me, it was like seeing how the allies and how the sports sport community has changed. There's a lot of work to do, but how the allies come forth and support and say, "Hey, no, no, you know, if you can play, you can play, right? You can yeah, play exactly. team and work with that." So that it and it's that that's really has shifted the momentum as well. Um, so I, I'm really inspired by the young people that are coming out and doing great things and doing so with the full capacity of being who they are and, and, and owning up to that. And I think that that's just, you know, better for everybody. Chris, what would you say are your greatest fears now? Getting old. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, well, my greatest fear now, uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, now that I have sort of a normal life, it's like, I, I, I have a small company and I do consulting and all that kind of thing. But, um, my, my biggest fear now is, uh, oh, geez, I don't, that's a really difficult question. Being forgotten, maybe. I, I, I was going to try to help spur you by saying the, those exact words. I think throughout my career, my, my legacy and my my track record, my, my stats, what I did again, because it, it was who I tied myself to being. And, you know, if I was a good person, I was a good volleyball player, that kind of thing that my legacy was everything. And right. so for that to be forgotten would be devastating to me. I think at the well, stage I'm at now, I need to obviously yeah. learn so- and get beyond that. But for me, I, I, I would agree with you there that it'd be being forgotten for the well, sacrifices why, that went in. Yeah, the the Nova Scotia Sport Hall of Fame is is very very important to me, and um, it touched me a lot um, because I know you know it's been almost twenty years, and I was 
always so worried that I would, you know, although I had, you know, great results and um, that my old home gymnastics community didn't remember or that there was nothing. Mm -hmm. in it. And also, I mean, you guys have five kids. I don't know. how. You, um, <laughs> we don't I either. No kids. <laughs> and, and so now I'm, I'm able to look back and say, yeah, I was a good athlete. I went, no, I mean, I can now, you know, I'm not an Olympic champion. I'm not Olympic medalist and not a world medalist. Uh, and you know what? Frankly, I'm okay with that. Now I'm really good saying, yeah, that's okay. But sometimes I think uh, at that moment, I thought, oh, you know, all of that thing, there's no one to, to, to remember that and to be forgotten in my legacy in sport. And then, then, I, then I get a call that I'm in the Hall of Fame and then that makes me go, <laughs> oh, and then, you know, and I think that also motivates me to help the younger athletes. I mean, Mark Tewksbury is a good role model too and people like that, you know, especially in the LGBTQ community. But I mean, I, I prefer not to do it for the, you know, for, for like public recognition, public recognition. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I feel like it's that athlete that, sent me that message saying that I was the, the person when he was a little kid that said, I want to be like him, even though, you know what I mean? Because do, do you he think saw something. that, yeah. Do you think that long after you've left this earth, that that is what you want your legacy to be is, is being that person who helped pave, pave the way for the next generation of being able to be comfortable with who they are with their sexuality in any circumstance? Yeah. I think it's not even the sexuality I, that I would, I would, I would love to be remembered for someone who really pushed the the need for a holistic uh approach to to sport i worked with athletes can for four four and a half years i was vice chair of athletes can i was on the canadian olympic committee's athletes council i was on the commonwealth games board of directors i was on the atlantic uh canadian sports center atlantic first year as the board of directors i was heavily involved in athlete leadership um because I wanted to make a difference for the next gener generation of athletes. I wanted to. That's to, your legacy. That's your yeah, legacy right there. I wanted right to make there. a difference, right? Like, yeah. And I knew that all the athletes had experienced the same thing. And I wanted athletes in, you know, whether you're in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, or in BC to, 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 to go for whatever they could go or feel that they could, they could do that. And so I think bigger than the, the, the LGBTQI diversity I think that's really what the, the underlying message is from that is that, you know, you know, I want I want sport to build community and build great people. And they can do that through high performance, but high performance shouldn't be the be all and end all. And I think yeah. as I get a little older, I look at, oh, OK, that's really what sport meant to do. Right. Yeah. And it's to tie uh, the world together. Mm -hmm. There's it's... nothing that builds community as mm. well as sport. Exactly. It doesn't build that team teamwork and working. Nothing, you know. And and I had some really fantastic teams in my time, and and you know I had some tough ones too. But I had some really and and I you know, it was really formative in terms of teaching me a lot. And and I've met some really incredible people in in sport that I really really admire that changed and shaped my life uh, simply just because they are who they are. And. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's what the power of sport can do. And I think, I think all high-performance athletes are a little idealistic sometimes, right? Because we're dreamers. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's ultimately what. That's okay. We're not going to thwart those dreams. <laughs> so, so I've got a few few uh, questions here for you that are just a little shorter, a little more specific. Okay. Um, if you have, if you had like one really small thing or action that has had a really big impact on your sport or life or relationships, what would that really small thing be? 
Wow, that's a difficult question. So, you know, you... A little something that might have had a big impact. It might have been earlier in your life. It might be now. And it has that big impact. And it could be any area. It could be sport. It could be life. It could be relationships. Um, wow, there's a lot. There's a lot to choose from. Um, I don't... I, 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 you can you can skip it. That's okay. We can skip that one because I don't really know how to answer that one. What what do you want people to know about you that most people don't know about you? Could be something quirky. Could be something unique. Just something that you know. If if you're an open book, what do you want someone to know about you that most people wouldn't know about you? Uh, what most people wouldn't know about me. While uh, you think while you think about it, Chris, I've got one that you told me about yourself that you said it was a weird experience to have to buy your first pair of shoes when you, when you retired <laughs> and, and luggage that, that, because that people, people don't know that about athletes that they, yeah. you know there's certain things that you just take for granted when you're on a team or in a sport that you get certain gear and then all of a sudden you got to buy it yourself and yeah, shoes I'd are never, expensive well I'd, I've never bought running shoes ever yeah. until I was 26 yeah, they just um, know your size, and you get your new gear, your kit. Every, your you yeah, go. everything was like from the age of from the age of eight or nine when your parents buy your stuff. I, mean, I had, um, yeah, you know, I had team gear from Canada Games right through to the national team. To you know, I was on the age group national team at the age of twelve. So you got to learn to buy 35. clothes. You got to learn to buy clothes too because you've been in yeah gym, like, how do you... gym gear all the time as well. Yeah, um, you know, I I think I think one of the the most important things that impacted me was, uh, you know, when I, when I was at the Olympics and I, I had somebody say to me, well, I said, well, you know, we, I've got to make a change. I've got to do something. I've got to do something for athletes. And, and they turned to me and said, so do it. Mm -hmm. It's something small. It just takes small actions to make a big impact. Because it, it wasn't about performance at that time. And, and well, what can an athlete do outside that? Well, and, and that, and then I remember, I remember what happened after that is I went to this person who was a mentor, became a mentor and I met them in their office and they were a successful business person. And I came in and said, well, I've got to make a difference. I've got to make a change. I've got to help these athletes. You know, we're struggling and we don't, shouldn't be struggling so much. And, uh, so, and, and then they sat down and they were gracious about it, took the meeting and said, well, what do you want to do? And I told them my idea and they said, okay. And they said, okay, let's do the, you know, here's what you got to do. And, uh, I, then about two weeks later, I booked another meeting and came back and I said, well, here's what I've done. And, and they laughed and they smiled and I said, why are you smiling? And then later on, I found out, I, they said, do you know why you got the second meeting? And I said, I said, no. She said, because most people come in and ask ask for something and then but they really want them to do it for them yeah and you you came in and said here's what i want to do teach me how to do it mm -hmm. i want to learn how to do it and you went away and did it and she said that was the difference and fundamentally that changed my whole perspective um in terms of empowering my own my myself if to, everybody did that the world would be a different place. But they took a chance, right? They didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't know that I was being tested. Um, and, 
you know, I do remember one of the most formative moments of my adult life after I retired was I also, um, after I retired from gymnastics, I took a year off work in Toronto, but then I joined Cirque du Soleil for three years. Uh, so I, I joined the touring company of Alegria mm-hmm. uh, for two years as an artist and then was an ar- assistant artistic director for Dralion. But they have this thing called formation where they basically take high performance athletes from all over the world and bring you to Montreal for four to six months. And they basically train you in circus arts. But the, what they're really doing is detraining the athletes <laughs> and creating artists. Yes. Reprogram. Reprogram. Yeah. I, it's, I just, this is so, you know, cosmic. I don't know what it is, but I just did an assessment on a Cirque du Soleil athlete today. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so what you're saying and just her describing some of the the artistic nature of it and all of this. Yeah, it's and that's that's exactly what I was hearing from her is just they're artists. That's what they do. They create art. Right. And that's very different than a high performance athlete that does yes. told and focuses on themselves. So we had this thing where we my training group was eight athletes. We were on something called Power Track and we were you know, you're training eight hours a day on various things. And we, they used to basically put you in improv and they used a lot of theater tools, but basically they had to detrain that high performance athlete. Two months into this training process, I was about, I, I was beating my head against the wall. And I remember driving there. uh, I had a car at the time and another athlete and I, who was in a different group, he was a world famous gymnast from Hungary and world famous. And he had won world medals and the whole bit. And we were both at this training and we both, they were making us do silly things like we had to be dogs and cats and chickens and this and that, all kinds of really crazy, embarrassing things. At the time, we thought they were embarrassing. Uh, and I remember I was driving him to the drugstore and he said, Chris, what are we doing? And I said, I don't know, man. Like, what is this all worth it? Like, why? I mean, we're not learning any skills. The reality was they were changing and training us. But yeah. I remember... He looked at me and he said, well, we have one of two choices. We either go home or we, we just go with it. And uh, I remember the next day, there was one girl that I worked particularly well, and they make you work in pairs. And there was a middle of this gym, and there was 50 people around, and we had to do this weird exercise. And I remember working on it. We, I said, I'm going to give up. I'm just going to go for it. We, I did it. And what happened was we were in this, doing this exercise for like minutes after minutes after minutes. And my partner and I kind of looked at each other and we said, we've got to stop. We looked up and both the coach, we had two coaches, an artistic and an acrobatic coach. Both were, had tears streaming down their face looking at me. And the, the gym sort of stopped. And I was like, holy shit, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> and they came running over to me and hugged me with tears down their eyes and said, this is the first time we've seen the real you. And I will never forget that moment. It was the first time I had taken off the, the waves of fear and shame and the masks. Yeah. And I just was. And probably one of the most pivotal moments in, in my life in terms of that aha moment, because what it really was, was an authentic moment. I was authentically myself. And that's what Cirque du Soleil 
pulled out of me through that training. And that's that moment where I realized that all that training and being closed off and protecting myself, whether it's from my sexuality or from training or from just being under the gun all the time under performance, that all broke down at that one moment. And it was actually so visible that everybody in the entire could see it. Paul could see it. And I realized, oh, that was the that was a huge moment for me. And and what a gift for you to have that experience and have that moment while still practicing your craft versus, you know, having it never happen in a sort of gymnastic sort of way. Yeah, it never ever, would have ever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It just never would have been there. And that was the gift that you were able to receive from that experience. Well, that was That's... what it was an opportunity to be me and be an artist and still be excellent and still do that all because what what the Cirque du Soleil wants to do was they they kept saying to me all the time, well, who are you? Where's your personality? And I would show them performance because that's mm-hmm. what I was trained. Right. Robot. Uh, robot. Robot. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm going to hit it. I'm going to hit the routine. Da, da, da. And they're like, we don't care about your technical. Everybody here is technically brilliant. <laughs> yes. and, you're, and all, the, you're all Olympians. And who, who are you? Yeah. Who and that's you? what makes, who are you? that's what makes Cirque du Soleil so world famous in what they do. That's because, it. Because it like, touches people. Well, that's, and that's exactly it. And you touch people by sharing energy and not being closed off. And so that was, and you can only do that by being different variations of yourself. And so when you're on stage, you're actually sharing with the audience and you have a tremendous amount of power. But it was that authentic moment when I realized, ah, all of that training when I was little about, you know, perform, win, 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 and people will like you all of a sudden broke down and saying, we don't care if you win because there's nothing to win here. This is mm-hmm. life and performance. Who are you? And I couldn't answer the question. And then I just sort of, once you start to open, break down those walls, all of a sudden it allowed that the other things to kind of come out. And oh, guess what? You know, I still had yeah. friends and I still did well. And, yeah. uh, and, and I was able to move on. And I think that was the beginning of the healing from yeah. that high performance mentality. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's an incredible story. Yeah, that's it's fantastic. Just... It's it's transformational, is what it is, and that's it that's is. the kind of thing that people need to experience to overcome the hardest things. Because otherwise, how do athletes know, right? I mean, you you retire, you then go back to school, or you get a job, and you've got the regular pressures of life, or you've got a family too, and you've got to make money, Be- and you've got become to miserable. To you become and miserable. And then you go, what am I doing? Who am yeah. I? And, yeah. And and uh, so I was fortunate from a creative perspective to have an opportunity to break down some of those barriers to, to, to kickstart that. So again, I think that's part of the reason why I think now giving back from a, from a, I, I can give back through one team in various ways, but that's a way for me to help engage um, the authentic selves of younger athletes. To, yes. Uh, to empower them, not yes. only for their sport, but for their life. And it sounds kind of cheesy, I guess, but that's, I think what it can do. And sometimes I had, I had these experiences. I had these retired athletes give me uh, an opportunity and give me some attention and give me some guidance. And so sometimes that's all young athletes need. Yes. That's fantastic. Um, On a lighter note, (laughs) what, uh, what is maybe a favorite food or dessert or both? 
You know what? I made a career out of not eating as a gymnast, but I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Uh, I've passed There's a great restaurant here in Toronto called Manji and Bevy, and they have great pasta. I love pasta. Um, <laughs> so, but I'm I'm from the East Coast, so I, I do like seafood too. My family's from Yum. yeah, my family's from Yarmouth. I have a little cottage there, family cottage, and my uncles and and aunts and were fishermen, and so seafood's good. Lobster's great. Favorite movie. <laughs> Uh, so the people I work with, uh, are constantly telling me that I need to stop quoting the devil wears Prada. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a bit of a stereotype. Um, I could <laughs> quote the entire movie, uh, and I probably shouldn't do it in a work environment, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I like a variety of everything from star Wars right up, but I mean, that's the movie I probably <laughs> quote that's... the most. Well, our, our family loves Star Wars, and I can probably quote way too much Dumb and Dumber, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, how about, uh, do you still work out? You know what? I do. And um, I used to work out a lot more. I'm 45 this year, so, you know. I can you find... still do an Iron Cross? Are you kidding? <laughs> I think I couldn't do an Iron Cross six months after I retired. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I... You know, I, I, I became a personal trainer for a while and I, and I trained just to, to keep fit, but I did find that, um, a career in sport like gymnastics, the, which is uses the entire body. So brutally sometimes that keeping in shape is absolutely critical to my mental and social and yes. physical well-being. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do go to the gym. I try to go at least three times a week. It gets harder because I, I, I run my own company and I, and I'm really busy sometimes. So. You got to do but, a self-care. Self-care is important for your optimal performance in your company. Have you been talking to my therapist? Hey, that's what they this say. is what I do. Yeah. I, coach, I coach top performers. So this is my job. Yeah. So again, that high performance work, work, work. I, you can't substitute high performance sport for high performance work as yeah. well, but it's a sort of a, a natural trend for us. But yeah, self-care and, and, and that kind of thing. So now I force myself to take time off and I go to the gym and try to keep healthy. And, and you know, as, as former athletes, we need to keep that up because that's where our, that's where our DNA comes from. Oh, like and it, my stress, my best thinking comes in the gym and it wards kind of, off depression. It keeps you yeah. functional. It, you know, there's so many, so many things. Yeah. And it's what, you know, right? Exactly. Being in good shape is important and being, having that, that physical intelligence because it's hard. It's yeah. hard when you're in your forties and your body starts to not do your brains i still think i can do triple flips yeah and I, yeah. and I know that if i tried i'd be in a wheelchair so uh you know i get i get that i really do i i don't do triple flip flips but i do i think that my body is my 20 year old body and i'm like wait a second why does that hurt I mean, what did i do i yeah. groceries what I, yeah i i play volleyball actually once in a while i played on sunday believe it or not paul uh, so i picked that <laughs> up as a as a social thing but you know, That's why probably, I emailed you, know. you. I emailed you Paul's uh, cartwheel, so you could see that. <laughs> yeah, I um, that. A favorite? Do you have a favorite book? Uh, hmm. Uh, the The Way of the Peaceful Warrior is one of my favorites. That's sitting on my night table. I read it a few months ago. Yeah, Dan Millman, because he was a gymnast and a trampolinist, and that was one of the most impactful books. I read it after I retired. Fantastic! Uh, fantastic! Yeah. And really powerful and uh you know i i off, i i normally read for entertainment but that was a book that had you know i mean eckhart tolly and things like that are good and i've read yeah. some of that stuff but the way of the peaceful warrior was had a huge impact on my my life 
That's excellent. Um, lastly, do you have any tip to young upcomers in the sport? Any advice? Uh, one of them is to ask for help. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, there, I, what I, what I realized looking back and having talked to people, I had a lot of people that were actually very, very close to me that I had no idea what I was actually going through mm-hmm. when I was going through a lot of the, the horrible hard times. Isolate uh, yourself. Yeah, it's isolated. High performance sport can be super isolating. Yeah. And if, and, and they look back and say, I had one person come up to me and say, oh my God, if only, I didn't know all of that. I didn't know it was that bad. Like there was, there was support and, and guidance and all that good stuff around me. I just didn't know how to access it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, breaking down some of those barriers. Uh, and that, I mean, like, again, back to that trip to Japan, I was able to interact with these young athletes at the peak of their career, you know, you know, most of whom are going to qualify for 2020. And, and it was just so inspiring to that. But it was kind of cool to be able to come back and say, you know, hey, I'm here. And hey, if you need anything, I'm here. I am here for you. Doesn't matter what it is. And one of the athletes had a had their team had issues and I just happened to know someone that was on the board of directors. So I was able to give them a call and just give some insight and say, Hey, do, are you aware that the athletes are going through this? That led to them working together with the athletes to help change the situation. So like, I was like, I felt so good about being able yeah. to just simply connect two people, but because they were willing to talk to me and, and knew that I was there and, you know, we're all still there, you know, supporting. So that's one of the things. And, you know, I wish more athletes were able to do that, like especially retired athletes like me. But there's honestly very little, there's very few ways that we can connect back. And it's very difficult for competing athletes to connect with older athletes like me. But, you know, whatever opportunity we can would be helpful. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. We, uh, we really, really, really appreciate this time with you. Um, you're your insights, your story, your advice is so valuable for us hearing it, but more importantly for other people who are in sport who need to hear your story to understand that they're not alone and understand that there are ways of of being who they are and dealing with what they're going through and help is there. And we really appreciate everything that you've done and who you are and uh, and yeah thank you so much for coming on on our podcast with us oh it's my pleasure thank you very much for having me i really enjoyed it thank you so much chris it's been wonderful to to reconnect and looking forward to talking to you more in the future and you got to promise to come back on because i (laughs) i really want to delve into life after sport i know you've got a lot to share uh, some opinions on that and the path of finding your identity. It's something I've struggled with personally and just look forward to discussing it more with you in the future. Yeah, if, as long as you promise to come play volleyball with my group of guys one time, I'll look like a rock star if you're on my team. So, <laughs> All right, <laughs> got a deal, you got a deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again so much and uh, we will connect with you soon because we would love to do a second, uh, a second show with you. Thank you, Chris. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye, Chris. Thank you so much for listening. To get more support in living your best life, find us in our free Facebook community, Empowered Top Performers. We're on Instagram at Paul Durden and at Empower Conditioning. Please share this podcast and rate us. A five-star review would mean the world to us.
That is how we connect with and support more people to excel in sport and life. Take what you learned today and try it. Progress is perfection.